Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by Ash Davidson. Um, her debut novel is called Damnation Spring, and uh, one of the best debuts I've read in a very long time. Uh, she was born in Arcata, California, and attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her work has been supported by the Arizona Commission on the Arts and McDowell. She lives in Flagstaff, Arizona. Ash, it's so lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Ash, I, I feel like I've read many debut novels, <laughs> many, but this is the first one, I think, that has a 53-year-old lager protagonist uh, in 1977. Tell me how you got there. I set out to write a book about herbicides. I was curious about the herbicides that had been used in that part of California in that time period because my family had lived there. And Rich just sort of walked onto the page and stayed for 10 years. And so he, he many of the characters have grown and changed around him and, you know, whole plot lines were cut and whole plot lines added, but Rich has been a constant. He's the constant. And I feel like I got an education in logging, <laughs> unlike any that I was prepared to have, um, in including the lingo. Um, there's so much great dialogue and I've learned so many new words that I feel like um, I'm not fluent, but, but I was very proficient by the end. Tell me about learning that lingo and sharing it with us. I think whatever you think of the morals of falling old growth trees, the engineering and the mechanics and the physics of cutting down a tree that's wide enough to drive a car through and taller than the Statue of Liberty is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested to dive into that world and learn as much as I could about it. And I found the language really interesting because of course logging, like any industry, has its own language. And I found it interesting in particular because so many of the vocabulary words that loggers use are revealing of the, the dangerous reality of their day-to-day workday. So a good example of that is the term widowmaker. There's a bar in the book named after this term. But a widowmaker in logging lingo is a branch very high up in a tree that could fall off and potentially harm you. And if you look out your window at the tree in the backyard, that might not seem like a terribly dangerous proposition, but when you're talking about a branch that's 300 feet in the air and the diameter of your arm even, if it falls and hits you in the back of the neck, there could very much be no, no coming back to work tomorrow. And so the, the sort of the literal meaning of that term widowmaker didn't hit me until I got pretty far into my research that that term had to do with how many widows branches like that had left um, back home and how many men were killed in the woods um, doing that work. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're so good at evoking how much danger is involved and how much skill is required to do these very specific jobs. Um, Rich as the, ooh, what's the correct term? You tell me. <laughs> Rich, is, Rich, is a tree, Rich is a climber, a high climber, or sometimes called a tree topper. So his job is to 
with a pair of climbing spurs and a steel cord rope and his, the strength of his arms and legs to climb up several hundred feet in the air, trim off the branches as he goes so that it's basically as clean as a telephone pole and slice the top off that tree so that it can be then rigged and kind of used as a mast to they they will haul up these giant pulley systems or they would in the old days and um and rig um basically a bunch of cables or chains um and use that to sort of maneuver where the logs are on a hillside and haul them up to a landing up at the top where they can be loaded onto trucks and i should say that i've never worked in in the logging industry i did some interviews with loggers i read a lot i'm sure there are things i've got wrong but i did my best to portray it accurately yeah and then of course pete's job also seems like yeah, he has to be a physicist. I think so. And I think that's something that really interests me about jobs like logging that are, they're not office jobs and they're not jobs that require a PhD, but they inquire, they do require a tremendous amount of intelligence and quick thinking and strategy and skill. And I think that when you get close up to those sorts of jobs, they're just as impressive as someone working in a physics laboratory. Yeah, and, and it, it becomes so clear why being a logger is such a huge part of Rich's identity and the identity of most of the men he works with. Yes, I think so. And I think that's a, that's a common theme through these types of jobs throughout the country, whether it's logging in Northern California or coal mining in West Virginia or um, oil and gas work in Wyoming, I think that there's a certain sense of pride as there is in any profession where you've made a good living and supported your family and kept the lights on and food on the table. And in some cases, those are first generation jobs, but in Rich's case, this is a profession that's been handed down for several generations. So I do think it's a core piece of his identity and it's very difficult for him and Colleen to imagine ever leaving this life, even when the circumstances become really difficult for them. Chronic migraine is 15 or more headache days a month, each lasting four hours or more. Botox, onabotulinum toxin A, prevents headaches in adults with chronic migraine. It's not for adults with migraine with 14 or fewer headache days a month. It prevents, on average, eight to nine headache days a month versus six to seven for placebo. Prescription Botox is injected by your doctor. Effects of Botox may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness can be signs of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Side effects may include allergic reactions, neck and injection site pain, fatigue, and headache. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Don't receive Botox if there's a skin infection. Tell your doctor your medical history, muscle or nerve conditions, including ALS Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. Ask your doctor and visit BotoxChronicMigraine.com or call 1-800-44-BOTOX to learn more. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yeah, at one point, um, Rich's son, Chubb, asks, what did you want to be when you grew up? And it, and it, ha- it, it really feels like it hadn't occurred to him that there was anything else to be. I do think that's definitely true. And I think where we're born and who we're born to determines a lot about the choices that we see in front of us. And I think Rich is a case where it didn't, it did not occur to him. He didn't have the time, you know, he lost his father very young. His mother died when he was young. He had to support himself. And this was a career that he could see a way, he could see a path. And I think that, um, I think that what your parents do can be can have kind of a determining impact on your life because when you're choosing what to do at that early stage those are the paths that you can see where they go even so I think it doesn't occur to him whether or not he wants to do this this is the Mm -hmm. thing that he knows that he can do so he does that and he does love it and he appreciates so much of I mean he loves parts of it let's let's be more um, clear about that. Um, but devotion or obsession with one particular tree um, kind of indicates how much he too is in awe of, of this land. Yeah, and I think that logging is, although it's a very difficult and dangerous profession, in Rich's case, you work in one of the most beautiful landscapes in the world. You know, he works in old growth redwood forests almost every day. And he takes a real joy in that landscape. And he spends not only his work days in the woods, but his free time in the woods. You know, they hunt, they fish, they camp, they pick berries. And I think that that was something that surprised me in my research and talking to people, because when you read about, when you, I think it surprised me in my research, because when you read about conflicts between logging interests and environmentalists from the outside, it looks like there's a very clear division with people who want to protect the forest on one side and people who want to cut it down on the other. And I think that in reality, that's a lot more complex. And we would do well to recall that the people doing this work are supplying goods that there's a market demand for. You know, I live in a wood house. I've written a book that's printed on paper. They are meeting a need of the market. And I don't think it's fair to assume that they're not conscious of the consequences of their industry and that they don't have their own concerns about how the forest will regenerate and what what kind of forests their children will have to explore. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's always more nuanced than we like to believe sometimes, I imagine. Tell me about the redwood as a metaphor because it just feels so rich in terms of the, the entire book revolves around this, this tree. I think the 24-7 tree, the tree that Rich is obsessed with, stands on a parcel of land behind his home. So it's in walking distance from where he's lived his whole life, the house he was born in. And it's a tree that his father showed him the way to when he was young. And so one of his only real memories of his father is walking up to visit that tree, which doesn't belong to the family. It belongs to 
um, to a private individual and it's on a large parcel of land over 700 acres. So it's really, a, it's really beyond their means. And it's one of about 200 old growth trees that are left on this really steep ridge because in the old days when they were cataloging and hauling trees out by rail, it was just simply too steep to get to, to it. So it survived by virtue of where it's situated. And I think the same is true for the community in a sense. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a rural and somewhat isolated place and it's beautiful. Um, but you are very much on your own when you live there. And so there's this tight knit of tight knit community. So there's this tight knit community of people who support each other, which is more true for the men who have very strong bonds with the other men on their crew because their lives are literally on each other's hands. It's a little more isolating for the women who are at home and so geographically disparate and separate from each other. But I think also the 24-7 tree is a stand-in for the 2 million acres of old growth redwood forests that originally blanketed the west coast of this country, of which in the time Rich is working, depending who you ask, only about 10 to 15 percent of that original forest remains. That's about 5 percent today. And so I think it's very much on his mind that acquiring this 24-7 tree and finally realizing the family ambition of following it and selling it would transform his life financially and give his son Chubb access to a completely different set of opportunities than he saw as a boy. But at the same time, he loves that tree. And I think he's very conscious of the fact that if I cut this tree down, no human being alive today will ever see another tree like this grow again. And so it's a terrible conundrum for him. And I think it takes a real psychic toll trying to balance um, the, what he wants for his family in terms of stability and a future and a real deep-seated love for a landscape that he's made his living destroying. For listeners who don't know, tell me, tell us what the um, 24, how the 24-7 tree was named. So the 24-7 tree was originally named in the late 1800s and it was named for its girth. It's 24 feet, seven inches across. It's a bit larger by the time Rich is hiking up to it because time has passed and yeah. it's put on some weight. But originally <laughs> it was 24 feet, seven inches across. And that's, I'm, I'm very much an East Coaster and that's unfathomable to me, you know? I think it's unfathomable for anyone. You know, there's an yeah. epigraph at, this, at the beginning of the book that comes from Travels with Charlie by uh, John Steinbeck. Mm -hmm. And the, the epigraph is very short. It says they're not like any trees we know, but that's taken from a larger paragraph where he talks about the fact that no one has ever successfully painted or photographed a redwood tree. And I really think that could probably be extended to writing. If you haven't stood underneath one and felt how small you are, it's very difficult to fathom just how large and majestic and impressive these trees are. Yeah, the novel's written in three, from three points of view, Rich, Colleen, his wife, and Chubb, his son. Tell me about writing Chubb's point of view in particular, because I was really drawn to those sections um, because Chubb is a five-year-old and um, there are things that 
he doesn't know yet that we sort of know, but, but not really. And he's not the most reliable narrator. Yeah, I think the book started out as a first person novel in Rich's perspective. It was like that for the first two years or so. And then I realized that there were a bunch of rooms that Rich just couldn't walk into literally and figuratively, you know, he couldn't walk in to women's kitchens and hear what their table, their kitchen table concerns are. He couldn't walk into Melody's bedroom when she's in labor. And so I added Pauline because that gave me access to the women in the book and their world of concerns and kind of their landscapes of preoccupation. But then both Rich and Colleen are fairly reserved and quiet and often don't say what they mean. And so I added Chubb initially as a point of access because I had worked as a nanny. So I had some experience with children that age and I really enjoy them. I think they're, they're filled with joy and awe for the world and they're just really alive to the magic of the world. You know, So Chubb is a great point of view to explore the physical world with, the natural world of the forest because he's quite literally lower to the ground. So he notices <laughs> slugs and bugs and plants and streams in a different way than adults because they're more impressive to someone who's who's only five years old. Um, but I also think even though there are restrictions in writing from a child's point of view, there are practical restrictions in their vocabulary and the, the complexity of the concepts that they can relate. But I also think that children can be un, unwittingly sometimes extremely perceptive. Mm -hmm. And even when they're witnessing a scene that they don't fully grasp, they sense that something is amiss. And I think that Chubb is a good stand-in for the reader in some cases, because he can reveal tensions that are simmering, but aren't spoken. And just by relating what he sees, it gives us as readers a chance to put two and two together with his help like if he yeah. wasn't standing in the room and being our eyes it would be very difficult to squeeze that information out of Colleen and Rich yes um and you bring up the idea of the sprays um in a really subtle way it's it starts out as the brush needs to be cleared and, and the government or the or Sanderson, the logging company is gonna spray the spray so that things will die around it so that they can do their work more easily. What's wrong with that? Yeah, and I think that, you know, as a population, we tend to assume if something is regulated by the federal government and approved for use, then it must be safe. And so it's rather surprising to learn that the herbicides in the book, 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, were the two active ingredients in Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty widely accepted now that spraying Agent Orange on civilian populations and crops in Vietnam was a war crime. And so the idea that these same poisons were sprayed in the US for forestry and other uses is pretty surprising. And the book is fiction, um, but my parents lived in a cabin very similar to the one that Rich and Colleen live in in the book. And they also relied on surface water, a creek behind the house for drinking water. And they became so concerned about herbicide spraying in that area and possible contamination in the water 
that they stopped drinking from that creek. And so I'd always carried that story with me and was curious about those herbicides. And so when I was doing my research, I was a book was recommended to me called A Bitter Fog by Carol Von Strom, which is a true story about a forest community in Oregon um, called Five Rivers, the Five Rivers Alsea area, where a group of mothers led by a school teacher named Bonnie Hill uh, noticed an unusual number of miscarriages in their small community. All relate, all sort of suspiciously timed in the spring after after the forest had been sprayed. And they wrote a letter to the EPA, not accusing anyone of anything, just saying we've know, we know that correlation is in causation, but we've noticed this, we'd like someone to look into it. And because a reporter got hold of that letter, um, that eventually led to two studies, the ALSI studies one and two, and to the emergency suspension of 245T for uh, forestry uses in 1979. But an interesting point that I learned when researching it was that although it was suspended for forestry use, it continued to be sprayed on rangeland where cattle grazed and on rice crops through the mid 1980s. And I was very surprised to learn about a, a case in Arizona where I live where a community was aerially sprayed with it. And so 245T is no longer on the market, but 24D is an ingredient in many lawn care products that you'll find on the shelf in Walmart if you go looking for something to control your dandelions. And the National Park Service actually sprayed 24D on the National Mall to control dandelions until 1980 when they banned its use on all National Park Service units. So the history of those two herbicides in particular and aerial spraying of herbicides, which continues today in many forest communities in the Pacific Northwest. And the issues that are chronicled in the book are similar to issues that, that real people continue to deal with on a daily basis today, which is kind of mind boggling to me. It sure is. And it's so helpful that you have these three perspectives because I, I I got the sense that like Rich and his crew um, are so used to being injured <laughs> that a simple nosebleed um, every now and then doesn't bother them in the slightest. And, and it has to build up amongst the women and the, their children before they begin to think that something might really be wrong. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you have to have a certain kind of optimism to do that kind of work because it's extremely dangerous. And in a way you're digging your own grave, you're cutting a resource that you know cannot regrow in your lifetime. And so you're essentially, by, by, by being really proficient at your job, you're also contributing to putting yourself out of, out of a job as those forest dwindle. And so I do think it takes a tremendous amount of optimism on their part. And just to, to survive in this line of work in this area takes like they are there by force of will. And so I don't think that they're, I think that their baseline assumption is that we'll be okay. If we just keep trucking, we'll be okay. And it, I also think that in retrospect, environmental issues like that look very clear to us with the benefit sure. of time. But when you're actually in it, the idea 
that something that is approved by the federal government for use that you've been told repeatedly is safe and is your ally in this work that you're doing, the idea that that might not be good for you is uh, difficult to entertain. It doesn't even enter your mind, I think. And and I do think it's interesting that a lot of the people who originally became concerned about this, I mean, in the Klamath area, in real life, the anti-spray movement was largely led by Yurok and Kurok tribe members, you know, people who'd been in the area, their ancestors had been in the area since time immemorial and were deeply tied to the land and noticed changes in, in nature, in, in land, in water, in wildlife and put two and two together. And I don't think that you need a PhD um, to realize that something is wrong when you pay very close attention to the world, to the natural world around you. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Yeah, uh, I, it's... It only makes sense that um, in Rich's small town, outsiders are looked at with suspicion. And it's really easy to make jokes about the long hairs who are fighting to save the forest. And it seems just as easy for them to um, discount the words of the people who were there originally. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a deep undercurrent of racism in the book. And there's a pretty, um, that manifests in pretty upsetting ways. And I think that the, I mean, Rich and his family have been in the Klamath area for several generations, but that's nothing compared to the indigenous people of the area. And although the book is told from the perspective of what are basically the descendants of white settlers, the original population of that area and the majority of population of that area was, is, and remains today indigenous. Tell me about the slow dawning, especially in Colleen, that, that something might be wrong, especially uh, given her um, past, with one of the scientists who's, who's studying this change. Yeah, Colleen has this encounter with an old flame who sort of plants this idea in her mind that some of the anomalies she's witnessed midwifing. She's not formally a midwife, but she's kind of fallen into it and de facto serves as the midwife in the community. And she's seen some anomalies in the course of her midwifing. So he's, he sort of plants the idea in her mind 
that some of those anomalies she's witnessed and maybe even her own miscarriages might be related to herbicides the logging company uses. And this is really upsetting for her personally because she's just survived a really traumatic stillbirth and she desperately wants to have another child. And I think that there's a certain amount of denial when she first has that information suggested to her because it's, it's almost too terrible to conceptualize. And I also think that especially in that time, miscarriage was such a taboo subject and women, even amongst themselves, didn't talk about it as much as I think women will talk about it today, even though I think still today, it's not as much a part of the discourse as it probably should be. Um, I've lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Colleen. um, Oh, just, hmm. I had somewhere I was going with that and I've lost track of it. I think that, I think that because I think that because miscarriage is such a taboo subject, Colleen has really internalized her miscarriages and assumed that it's something she's doing wrong. She blames herself. She blames her body. She thinks about all the things she's, she's done that could have triggered it. Did she lift something too heavy? Did she not rest enough? Was she not eating or drinking properly? And I think the idea that perhaps it's nothing she's doing, it's an, it's an environmental um, contaminant that she's exposed to, it, it, it's appealing in one sense because it's something, it's not something that she's done. It's not something that she could control. It's also terrifying because once it occurs to her that it could be in her water, she thinks about everywhere that water is. You know, it's in the pots she cooks in. It's in the glasses she drinks from. It's in the bathtub that she puts chub in at the end of the day. It's in the water she uses to water the garden. And I think that there's a scene when she's been washing the dishes and she washes her hands, she dries them. And then she has this feeling of almost like a residue on her hands and wanting to wash it off. And I think that the once it starts to dawn on her that if this is the reason, I don't know if I can escape it is really terrifying for her. Yeah, she also has to buy into this idea that Sanderson, the logging company will take care of her and, and that they treat their employees like family members, which is like always a red flag, I think. Um, Tell me about that. Although the climate of the book, which is fictional, is not technically a company town in that people own their own houses, they don't rely on a company store, they aren't paid in company script. It is for all intensive person. It isn't for all intensive purposes a company town in that like it is it, Sanderson is basically the only employer in the town. And so if you work in the logging industry and you want to work in that radius, that's who you're going to work for and men like Rich have worked for the Sanderson family for generations and so there's a fairly entrenched dynamic of obedience between the workers and the company and a sense that 
you keep your head down, you do your job, you don't ask questions, they will pay you a good wage, make sure you have a job for your whole working life, make sure your family has access to a medical clinic if they need it. So we'll take care of you as long as you don't protest. And so at the first sort of whiff of dissent, um, at the first sort of whiff of dissent, you know, a guillotine will come down, like it is just not tolerated. So unlike many wood products um, companies, the workers of Sanderson Timber are not unionized. So they're very much at the mercy of their employer. And so the idea of suggesting that that employer might be doing something that's harmful for the community, if it's in the economic interest and good for the bottom line of the company is not going to be a popular position. And I think that weighs very much on Rich's mind where he ends up sort of having to make a devil's bargain and he's stuck between his wife who he loves and his boss who he depends on. Yeah. Um, Ash, thank you so much. If you can't tell, if you're listening to this, uh, Damnation Spring is about 450 pages and it is transportive and uh, we, we barely even got into it. So thank you, Ash. And before we go, um, would you like to recommend a couple of books? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor to be here. Um, so if you're interested at all in the true history of herbicides, one book which I mentioned, which I'd highly recommend is A Bitter Fog by Carol Von Strum. Uh, the, a new edition recently came out. There's also an excellent documentary on PBS, Independent Lens, called The People versus Agent Orange, partially based on that book that I'd highly recommend. Mm. If you're interested in the history of redwood logging and all the events that sort of led up to redwood summer, I'd really recommend The Last Stand by David Harris, which is nonfiction, but it is an incredible epic read. It reads like a novel um, and you'll learn about a lot about logging and about the redwood forest. Um, and then one book that won't be out until next year is a novel called The Return of Faraz Ali by Amina Ahmad. And it has everything. It's, it's a war story, it's a detective story, it's a love story. It's set in the red light district of Lahore in Pakistan. And it centers around a detective who's returned to investigate the murder of a child prostitute. And it is just, you won't be able to put it down. You won't be able to like take two days off work because you, you won't be able to sleep. I, I love this warning. Um, Ash, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.